Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. So we'll often cling to those things, even though they know that they will not ultimately help them. People like Rafiq Abdul Mortland. Now this guy clearly needed to choose another career. He found that what he was doing was putting him under pressure, not to mention that it was illegal. Mortland committed a string of robberies in Hempton County, Minnesota. And after capture, he received a sentence of 8 to 10 years in prison for holding up local businesses. During his crime spree, however, Mortland received the nickname, the Rollades Robber. This came about after Mortland repeatedly asked door clerks for antacid tablets while the felony was in progress. His explanation? Mortland said he needed the antacid tablets because of the stress that came from committing those crimes. I remember what that was like. Before I was saved, the things that I was doing was killing me, but I didn't know what else to do. So I say, thank God for Easter. As I thought about what to preach for this Easter for the first time that I've been here, I'm not going to do a topical study, but continue on in the series that we are currently in. I'm doing that because I think that John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, are the very essence of Easter. For in those verses we read these words, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. But before we can get into the meat of that, we need to deal with verse 8 where we read, All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Lying prophets, often posing as true shepherds, also threatened the early church as they still do today. Jesus cautioned, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warned the elders of the Ephesian church, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So, how do we know the difference between a sheep and a wolf? Because outwardly, they can often look exactly alike. I think the easiest way to differentiate them is simply by looking at what they eat. Sheep are herbivores, and they will only eat vegetation. However, wolves are carnivores, and they will mostly just eat meat. So... If you ever see a sheep eating another sheep, then you can be sure that under there, there's a wolf hidden under that sheepskin. Now, this is nothing new, as I said, as we've seen that even in the early church, church, wolves were already beginning to insert themselves. The apostle Peter would write, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. 
And in their, and here's the word, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. There are two kinds of such men, and Jesus uses two different words to describe them. The first word is kleptes, from which we get our English word kleptomaniac. It refers to someone who steals cunningly or by stealth. Now, the other word is lestes, from which we have no English derivative. It refers to someone, though, who steals by violence. Thus, if we can imagine the first one to refer to someone who carries off department store merchandise under their coat, while the second person would refer to those who might use guns to rob a bank. Sadly, in the religious world today, both are still prominent. The first type uses cunning, as Satan did in his approach to Eve in the garden when he hissed, Did God really say? In this category are all those who raise doubts in the minds of others. They can be unbelieving ministers, Sunday school teachers, and even professors of theology. It might shock you to know there are actually self-proclaimed atheists who teach at many Christian seminaries. But by their questions, they turn the minds of the learners away from Christ and instead calls them to rely upon the supposed wisdom of these teachers. These are those whom Paul will term treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying his power. He then advises, have nothing to do with them. Now the other type is violent. For he thrust himself into a place of authority in the church and then demands that other people follow him. The Bible term for this ecclesiastical tyranny, I'll get it, is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which God hates, as found in Revelations 2.6. Now here's an interesting side note for those of us who like to wear Nike shoes. The word Nicolaitan consists of two Greek words. The first is Nike, which means to conquer. This is where they got the idea for the shoe. But the second word is laos, which we we would translate as the laity, or a group of people who would be gathered in a church. So when we put those two words together, we get someone who would conquer those who gather together in the church. What does that look like? Well, I guess it can take many forms, such as demanding that women can't wear pants, or during the shepherding movement, even what you could buy, or even who you were allowed to marry. Even today, there are churches that say it is a sin for women to wear any kind of makeup whatsoever. Of course, I heard one preacher say it's a sin for some women not to wear makeup. I didn't say that. Don't email me. But most often today, it has to do with bilking people out of their hard-earned money. I'll never forget years ago, one of those false TV preachers were offering, for a love gift, of course, miracle wallets. Supposedly, 
If you had said wallet, anytime you needed money, if you just had enough faith, money would appear in your wallet. I'm not making this up. But what was strange was at the end of most of his TV programs, he would often tell you that his ministry was suffering financially and would ask people to send in money. Do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> now, my question is, if you have a warehouse full of miracle wallets, why not take some money out of some of them and meet your financial need? Sadly, though, people are so blind, they couldn't figure that out, and they would still send him all kinds of money. It would be funny if it wasn't so very sad. One guy said that when he sees TV ministers like that, it's like watching professional wrestling. You know it's fake, but it can be fun to watch. Look at verse 9 with me. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. We talked about this last week. Jesus says, I am the door, not a door, not one of many doors. I am the door, and everyone else is a thief. Jesus alone can make this claim. Whether you read the readings of Krishna or Buddha or Confucius, you'll find that every one of them claimed to be one of the ways in which the God consciousness was manifested. In contrast to that, Jesus uniquely says, I am the door and everybody else is a ripoff and a thief. Once again, the amazing thing isn't that there is only one way. The truly amazing thing is that God provided a way at all. People sometimes say to me that there are many roads that lead to God. And I agree with them 100%. Before you scream heresy and start throwing things, what I mean is that the end of our lives, whatever road we take, will lead us to stand right before God. But the question remains, will God accept the road that you chose, especially since the Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is only one road to him that he will accept, and that is the highway of holiness that was opened by the blood of his son. Jesus then tells us that the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. But what does it mean to have an abundant life as the Bible defines that? The tragedy in America especially is that most people are content with amusing themselves to death. This is best proven by just breaking down the word amuse. We know that to amuse means to think. And when you put the prefix a before it, it now means not to think. So when you would go to an amusement park, the goal was to forget about all your problems and not think about them. 
and instead just enjoy the rides. Although the last time I went, which was many years ago, all I remember was thinking about how long the lines were, and I was not amused. But once again, this type of thing is nothing new. Like in ancient Rome where the people would demand, just give us bread and circuses. But we're no different here. If we had no other barometer of American interest in amusement, we can measure by the salaries of professional athletes and other entertainers. By this barometer, we value amusement more than medicine, government, ministry, education, or scientific research. For all of these are salary or fee compensated professions in which very often the financial rewards pale in comparison with those of professional athletes, singers, and talk show hosts. Think about that for a second. That means that an orthopedic surgeon who examines the ALC of a bench-setting guard of a professional basketball team is likely looking at and looking up at his cultural superior. So what is the abundant life? And how does that apply to all of us this Easter morning? We will spend the rest of our time on that very question. Now, there are many people today, such as the false prophets of the Word of Faith movement, who interpret abundance primarily meaning financial prosperity, as in, a, as in an abundance of money and possessions, creature comforts, a fat wallet, a prestigious job, the nicest home in the neighborhood, and the sleekest car in the driveway. Yet I see no indication that Jesus offered his followers anything by the way of material wealth. Jesus offered no stack of shekels, no pension, no insurance coverage, not even a guarantee of safety. In fact, he promised them quite often just the opposite. Now, I love John 10.10, but increasingly, as I have heard testimonies in preaching, it can come across this way. Come to Jesus, and you will have an abundant life. Get saved, and you'll have peace, joy, and a love that you've never known. And while all that is true, if people respond to the gospel solely based upon that, when they get fired from their job, or when their spouse dumps them, they say, wait a minute. Jesus said I would have an abundant life, but look at me. And they can become disillusioned and disoriented in their faith. But listen to me this morning. John 10.10 is the result of the gospel, but it is not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is found in the next verse, which we will look at next week, which says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The essence of the gospel is not what Jesus will do for you. It's what he has already did for you when he died for your sins. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve, our sins passed present and future are forgiven in totality and that is the message 
of Easter. We can have an abundant life here and more importantly, an eternal life in heaven because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, our English word abundance comes from two Latin words, which means to rise in waves or to overflow. Now, the first translation gives us a picture of an unceasing rise of waves upon a seashore. There the waves would rise again and again. One wave surges forward and exhausts its force on the sand, but another follows, and another, and another. This will continue as long as time lasts. Now, the other picture is that of a flood. Now, this makes us think of a river that has been fed by heavy rains rising irresistibly until it finally overflows the banks. Now, if you put that together, the abundant life is therefore one on which we are content in the knowledge that God's grace is more than sufficient for our needs, that nothing can suppress it, and that God's favor towards us is always unending. The word abundantly means a superior type of living, not just an abundance of things, but rather a higher quality of life. So it's mainly not about quantity, it's about quality. What is the full or abundant life? Let me tell us first what it is not. It is not necessarily a long life. Missionary Jim Elliott was only 29 years old when he was speared to death by the natives he was hoping to evangelize. It is not necessarily a life that's free from sorrow or sickness either. Although God certainly makes, does spare us many sorrows, and sure, he sometimes probably even spares us from sickness, but we're not promised that. It's also not a life of sickly, gooey piety where everything is beautiful, precious, or just wonderful all the time. The abundant life, as Scripture speaks to it, is above all the contented life, in which contentment comes from the fact and the confidence that God is equal to every emergency and does indeed supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But before one can know the abundant life, we first must know life. That is, we first must be made alive in Christ. Christ is speaking of this when he says, I have come that they may have life. And it is only after that that he adds and have life abundantly. Let me ask you, are you aware that you have been made alive spiritually? You should be just as certain of this as you are certain that you have been made alive physically. In fact, one whole book of the Bible is given to us so the Christians who have been made alive through the new birth may be certain of it and might grow through Christ on the basis of that assurance. That book is 1 John. And John tells us that this is the purpose of his writing. He says... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have 
eternal life. And yet, sadly, the vast majority of humanity prefers to live life on their own terms, even though it can never satisfy the longings of a human heart. In what really amounts to a cartoon, Proverbs 19.24 describes a sluggard's approach to his meal. It says, he buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. What does that mean? The sluggard's body tells him that he needs food, but his wasted will can manage only to drop his hand in the pot. That's it. The sluggard will not take the return trip because it includes an uphill, an uphill battle against the massed forces of gravity. And he cannot think of a good enough reason to test those forces. In fact, he cannot think of a good enough reason to even think. And very much like that. Making a career of nothing Wandering through malls, killing time, making small talk, watching television programs until we know their characters better than our own family and friends, robs the world of all of our gifts and energies that God has put into us. And as one man put it, shapes life into a yawn at the God and the Savior of the world. This is not how we were intended to live. God wants us to have an abundant life down here, but even greater than that. If you are his, he will give us an abundant life forever. Did you know that mankind was never meant to die? The Bible tells us that sin brought death into the world. In Genesis, we're told that when Adam and Eve sinned, the human race was put into exile from the Garden of Eden. And what was in the middle of that garden? It was the tree of life. We were not meant to die. Death is unnatural. Death is wrong. But because of sin, like Israel of old, the whole human race is now in exile. We're all in exile we're exiled from our true home. We're exiled from our true selves. We're exiled from our true natures. We weren't meant to die. And as a result, all of us are now in ultimate exile. A man named Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish doctor, was put into one of the Nazi death camps. But he survived and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. As a doctor, he was fascinated by the fact that the death camps were indeed horrible places. Death was imminent. I mean, death was everywhere. Death could take you like that. You were stripped of everything. It was an awful experience. And he noticed people responded, it, responded to it in one of three ways. One, some people turned to their base animalistic natures. They lost all of their principles. They did anything to survive. They betrayed one another. They exploited people. They were informants to the Nazis and so forth. Secondly, some people just gave up. They literally kind of dried up. They just withered. Sometimes they actually laid down, curled up in a ball, and died. 
They became utterly despondent. And finally, some people became quietly heroic. Some people had courage, made sacrifices, and rose above their circumstances. Dr. Viktor Frankl asked himself, what's the difference? And he came to this conclusion. It depended on what your hope was. If you had a hope or a meaning in life on something or something that you live for that suffering and death could take away from you, then you were a goner in that death camp. If you live for money, all your money was taken away. If you live for your family, very often your family was taken away. If you live for status, rich and poor together was thrown in the same hole and all dressed in the same rags. And he realized that most people did not have a hope that could stand up to death. They didn't have a hope that could overcome death. They had a hope only for this life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we as Christians have a hope only for this life, we are above all men most miserable and should be pitied. Most everybody, Dr. Frankel realized, lived for things in this life. We live for status. Some people live for money. Some people live for love. Some people live for things. But suffering and death, which is inevitable, will one day take all of those things away. What that means is we're all in exile. We were not meant to die. And as a result, where Israel's exile was a national exile, they were still alive, but they were both virtually and nationally dead. Now, you and I are physically alive, but exiled. We're sitting here, aren't we? But we're virtually dead, too. What I mean is, unless the rapture happens, death is coming sooner or later. And death takes out hope. Unless you have a hope that can transcend death. It's Jesus Christ saying, I'm about to lead the ultimate return from exile. I'm about to get you out of the ultimate problem. I'm going to have you escape from death itself. If you believe in me, I will breathe my Holy Spirit in you. That means because I was raised from the dead... If you believe in me, someday you also will be raised from the dead. There is the ultimate hope. There is a hope that death can't take away from you. Do you see that? That's an infallible hope. That's an industrial strength hope. That's a hope that nothing can eradicate. No wonder Paul would actually thumb his nose at death. Paul sounds so poised when he says, Oh, death, where is your strength, your sting? And, oh, grave, where is your victory? Paul is actually mocking the grim reaper. He's saying, come on, death, just try. If you try to diminish me now that I have the Holy Spirit in me, now that I have Jesus Christ breathing his life into me, if you try to diminish me, you're only going to enhance me. If you try to lay me low, you'll only raise me higher. 
If you try to destroy me, you'll only recreate me into something more glorious than I can even imagine. That's the reason why George Herbert, the great 17th century poet, in one of his lines says something like this. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. What he's saying is death used to put you in the ground, but now all death can do is plant you like a seed, and you become something amazingly beautiful. Here's another paraphrase of one of Herbert's poems where he says, Talking to death, spare not, do thy worst, thou shalt only make me better than before. Do you remember in The Lion King, the big lion and the little lion? The little lion says, I don't understand, Father. How are we part of the great circle of life? Well, son, we eat the antelope, but then we die and become fertilizer for the grass the antelope eats. So we're all part of the great circle of life. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) You're essentially just fertilizer. You can eat your kelp salads and drink your tofu milkshakes, but eventually, you're just going to be worm food. Tell yourself that and see if that gets you through the death camps. That's why there is no hope in this world apart from the resurrection of Christ. And yet, because of the exile, we will know God in a way that we couldn't have known him before. You know what the principle is? Paul says, your afflictions are preparing a weight of glory that will far outweigh any troubles we may have endured in this life. When Jesus Christ appeared in the upper room, you could still see the nail prints. Isn't that weird? Why weren't they wiped out? This is a resurrected body, but they were still there, I believe. God is so triumphant over evil that every emotional scar you incur in this life will only make your eventual joy and glory in the resurrection even greater. The resurrection does not only just give you hope, especially for the future, it gives you hope to handle your scars right now. As we finish up this morning, you may say, well then, why did God make me go through this, or why did God make me go through that? Historically, I can't answer that. Things like, if this, if this happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And God alone knows why all these things happened historically. But I can tell you what I can tell you. That is that bad things are happening, and yet God is going to say, I'm going to redeem them so that every bad thing that happens to you will only make your eventual glory greater and your eventual joy greater. The resurrection can redeem your scars right now. Maybe someday we'll all have our scars and we can look at them and realize to what degree it made the glory and joy of God eventually greater in our lives. Now, I don't understand quite how that works. But you can see it here. Don't you actually look at the things that are really bad that you've done in the past that you should not have done? And yet, if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have much of the wisdom that you have and much of the joy that you have, right? You wouldn't be able to help the people that you help through empathy. 
How does that work? Because God's resurrected power is going to triumph over all evil and all the sins so much that even the bad things that we have done and even the bad things that may be happening to us right now will somehow be taken all together and it's going to make the eventual glory even greater. So what in the world are we afraid of? And how dare we hang our heads? We can have abundant life while we are in exile, and we will have abundant life through eternity. Why? Because he has risen. Yes, he has risen indeed. And that is our hope, Lord, that is our only hope. There is no plan B. And I'm thankful for what you have done. I really loved Ellie's prayer this morning. I just say amen to that. That was so good. God, you know where all of us are at. Some of us don't know your resurrection power. And even the people that may watch this on the Internet, I just pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in such a way that if they don't know you, Lord, today would be the day. What a day to get saved on Easter. And, Lord, I know there are some of us who's we are your children. Our, our hands are hanging low, Lord. I pray that you would just infuse life into us once again. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's being the first Sunday of the month. I'm asking Elder Klein and Elder Hank.